All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is where we will be. If you don't have one with you, you are welcome to grab the hard back uh, black cover Bible that is underneath the seat around you. We'll be in Romans chapter 5 uh, this morning as we study the scriptures together. Uh, my first love in life was basketball. And so before I discovered girls and before I discovered God, I discovered basketball. And I love basketball. Uh, and I remember being a 9 or 10 year old little kid and carrying around with me. Like I remember where I went, went uh, this little yellow notepad with the, the spiral binding. Uh, and I would just jot down basketball plays that came up in my mind. And so I had this, like, two or three of them by the time I was 12 or 13, just full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different basketball plays. It's just what I love to think about, what I love to do, what I love to talk about, what I love to watch. And I can remember playing basketball growing up, uh, going into middle school, where the competition goes from the neighborhood league, okay, to the school league, and it gets a little, a little tougher. And I can remember in middle school basketball, at a practice, my first practice in middle school basketball, and practicing with someone who was really good at basketball, uh, who, who was kind of like the stud of the team. And I can remember how surprised I was that he would just sit there for hours and just dribble with his right hand. And then for hours, we'd just dribble with his left hand. And for hours, we'd just do this kind of layup and this kind of layup. And then we'd take hundreds and hundreds of shots at all the kinds of different places around the court. And it kind of dawned on me as like a sixth grader, wow, that's why he's so good. Because <laughs> he's in here every day for hours and hours and hours at a time doing the same things over and over and over and over again. So that when he's in the game and it looks so easy to him and it looks like it's so easy, he's so much better than everybody else. It really goes back to these hours of practice that he's put into the gym by his, his lonesome, usually all by himself. And I remember also in middle school, uh, if you're familiar with basketball, you kind of know this process. Most kids, when they start playing basketball, will shoot from their chest or from their chin because you've got to kind of muster up the strength to get up to a 10-foot goal. Um, and sometime as you're developing uh, uh, your game as you're growing up, you have to switch your shot from down here to up here to above your head because uh, you don't want to get blocked. And if, particularly if you're short and white like me, you're going to need the highest release point as possible. And when you're first doing that, it's very, very, very awkward because you spent 12 years, however long, shooting kind of from your chest or from your chin. And to try to start up above your head and shoot is really, really awkward. And it takes time and practice until it becomes kind of second nature to you. Uh, I'm told, I don't play golf, but I'm told it's a similar thing with your golf swing. So if someone, if you get a, a pro to come up or someone gives you some advice, right, and kind of changes your golf swing where you put your hands, where you position your back or your legs, that the first few times you do that, right, it feels really awkward. It feels like there's no way this is going to work. This is going to be a good swing for you. But over time, and with practice and with effort, it becomes, in a sense, second nature. And what we're talking about is just this idea, okay? How do you and I become people who look and talk and act like Jesus? How do we become people who, who when we act and think and relate to other people, it looks just like second nature to us? What's the process? What's the road of getting there? What's the road of transforming our hearts and our character and our minds? And the answer that we've been given is virtue. It's thinking through where are we going to be? What's the goal? What's the end of our lives? <laughs> thinking through the kind of character traits that one would have to have to get there and then to flourish while you're there. And then starting to now, daily, in the present, participate in practices and disciplines and habits and patterns that will shape us into people of that character. It's the power of habits. It's the power of practice. It's the basketball star who makes the shot, and it looks so easy to him, and then you realize he's been putting in the hard work, these daily choices. And so we're, we're going through this series on virtue. Uh, we discovered in the scriptures that there are three theological virtues, three character traits that um, characterize someone who's a fully developed, mature Christian. 
who will be able to make it to God's new future that he's creating and will also be able to thrive and flourish while he's there. Their faith, hope, and love, according to 1 Corinthians 13. These are the kind of traits that will exist forever. And so we might as well start to practice them now. Start to exercise those muscles, our faith muscles and our hope muscles and our love muscles. And so last week we talked about faith and we talked about how that works itself out as a virtue. And then also what are some practices that we can do now to develop our faith, to practice, to exercise that muscle, that moral muscle. Today we're going to talk about hope, the second of the three theological virtues. And so to do that, we're going to camp out for a bit in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, these first five verses... Uh, Give us a nice little picture here from Paul about the Christian hope. So if you would read it with me. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is a, a nice little passage on the kind of hope that God's grace and his salvation create, or at least should create, in the Christian heart. You'll notice I think this is a, a virtue passage. Hope is something that's developed over time. It's something that is produced over patient endurance, enduring through sufferings, through tribulation. Hope is something that is developed the more and more we learn about God's grace given to us through Jesus and poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We'll define hope this morning like this. It's the settled, unwavering confidence that the triune God will never leave us or forsake us. And that he'll always have more in store for us than we could think of or ask for. Faith is, or hope, excuse me, is the settled, unwavering confidence that the triune God, the God of the scriptures, Father, Son, and Spirit, will never leave us or forsake us and always has more in store for us than we could even think of, than we could even start to imagine to ask for. You'll notice this passage is a beautiful trinitarian passage right you've got god the father we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through his work and his life and his death and his resurrection and then his love has been poured out into our hearts now through the holy spirit who's been given to us the first thing to notice about christian hope if we're kind of shaping it out here from this passage is that it's situated in a person to be more specific in persons three persons three persons of the godhead of the the trinity and the Father, and the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Our hope as Christians, our confidence in the future, is directly related to the object of our hope, to who we're hoping in. Much like faith. Our faith is as big as the person that we put it in, and, and we put our faith in the triune God. So it is with hope. Our hope is directly related to the one whom we put it in. We don't hope that just these natural causes will somehow work out for our good. And we don't hope that just people, humanity, will figure things out in the end and things will work out. We hope in the triune God, in the one who has existed for all of eternity, and the one who created all things and is committed to redeeming all things. Notice in, in Romans 5 here, our hope, Christian hope, and this is such an important point, is always located in the context of God's grace, in the story of God's redemption, his rescue, his salvation. He starts off in, in 5.1, we've been justified, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since you and I have this right standing before God, once enemies, once under wrath, 
since we now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. This is temple language. Okay, You had to be a certain kind of pure to enter into the temple and to experience God's presence, to experience his love. And he says now because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his blood washing away our sins, you and I have access to the Holy of Holies. We have this right standing before God. We have peace with God. We have obtained access into his grace. And then in verse 5, his love, it's been poured out. Past tense has been poured out into our hearts through the spirit, the spirit who's been given to us. Christian hope finds its, its footing. It finds its content in the context of God's salvation, his grace. It's the narrative of Jesus and his people. The narrative of the God becoming enfleshed, Becoming man, dying for our sins, raising again, ascending into heaven, sending his spirit to be with us. It's that narrative, it's that story, it's that view of history and of our lives that really sets the stage for you and I to have a full, robust Christian hope. Who we are and what we do is largely influenced and determined. It has everything to do with the kind of story that we think that we're living, the kind of story that we think that we're in. Wittgenstein noticed the philosopher that the world of a happy person is way different from the world of an unhappy person. They both might have the same circumstances and they both might have the same problems or struggles or people in their life. They both might have the same weaknesses, but they're living in almost different worlds, different stories, different contexts. And so how they interpret that, how they, how they read that, how they react to that is, is different. And for the Christian who believes, again, that all of history is the story, is, is the triune God coming after, chasing after a creation that's fallen, seeking to rescue and to redeem, to seek and save that which is lost. And it's the belief that we have somehow, I mean, how absurd is this, but we've somehow find our place. We've, we've been put into that story. We've been captured by that love. We've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus we've been given the spirit it's that story that, that we believe that we are in it's that narrative we find ourselves that makes Christian hope make sense and that really changes how we're going to engage with what comes our way and how we're going to react to what comes our way so a colleague of mine at the school that I work at has been recently diagnosed with breast cancer this is what this is for okay fight like a girl yeah let's do it uh, and she uh, is going to start chemo this week and it's been so interesting watching her deal with the diagnosis of breast cancer because it's been dealt with, it's been received with joy and worship. And it's very obvious to everyone around her that it's brought her that much closer to God. And with that closeness to God comes joy and peace and security and confidence. And it's because she finds herself in this story. She finds herself in this context wrapped the grace given to her and the love of God poured out into her heart through the Spirit. And that produces this, again, settled confidence. Notice that there's this cycle here that Paul lays out for us of hope. He says we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in the hope that we have because of God. He says even more than that, we're happy, we rejoice, we give thanks to God when we suffer. Which has got to be one of the weirdest things the scriptures will sometimes say to us. You could even maybe suggest that suffering is a virtue in the scriptures. It's so constant of a theme. It seems like so natural, so required of the path that one takes to, to get to God. I mean, this is the road of Jesus to pick up the cross. 
You, though, might not want to say that suffering is a virtue if you're using technical language. Because notice, suffering doesn't exist for itself. It's producing something. It's not an end. It's more of a means. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Not because we're masochistic, okay? Not because we like to suffer. Not because we think that's a good thing. But because we know something. We know that suffering will produce something in our lives. Something that's good and that will last. Something that will be useful. Suffering, he says, produces endurance. Because knowing who God is and situating ourselves in his story, we continue to worship and we continue to follow him. And we even reap benefits of the rewards we get when we continue to follow, when we continue to worship, when we're suffering. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance itself is not necessarily an ends in itself. It produces something as well. It produces character. It produces a certain type of person who's been tested through suffering. I'm sure you all know that person person who's been through the storm and is on the other side. And they have that steely confidence about them. And endurance produces its character. And notice what the character produces, hope. It's the virtue. It's what will last. It's the character trait that everything is supposed to be leading up to. It's one of the three things, according to 1 Corinthians 13, that we're going to continue to be and produce and be characterized by in eternity. Suffering brings endurance, and endurance brings character, and character brings us hope. Our hope doesn't explain our suffering or the suffering of the world, but it does allow us to endure it, to be patient and to grow. And the goal of the Christian life is to endure, is to keep following, is to keep walking along the path and to be, again, a hopeful person. Notice that Christian hope is is a little bit different um, than maybe perhaps we use the word hope sometimes. Often we use the word hope as like a Hail Mary, right? Like, all these circumstances look differently, but I'm going to hope that this is going to happen. It's like, this is my last-ditch effort. Maybe we'll all stumble into an alternate reality where this comes true, okay? But the Christian hope is different from that. Christian hope is a certainty. It's assured. And it finds that assurance from the person from whom the hope is in. So, for instance, we're all hoping that the Texans will win this morning. If you're not, there's always church discipline. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed last week, but the Texans were playing the Broncos, and we have some Bronco fans in the, the congregation, and we actually, for communion, had Texans and Denver over here all dressed up the garb. I was like, how symbolic of the unity of the table where we all gather around Christ's table to worship. So we're hoping the Texans are going to win, right? But that is not a sure thing, okay? Now, Tennessee's not the greatest team. We're playing pretty good. We're probably going to win this morning. But in the end, that's out of our hands. And there's a good chance. I mean, it's in the realm of possibilities that they're going to lose. But Christian scriptures say it's not that way with the kind of hope that you and I place in God. It's not that sense of uncertainty, that sense of wishfulness, that sense of, I would really desire this would happen, but I'm not too confident about it. Christian hope is a settled hope. It's a steely confidence. One, because of who God is, and then two, because of what he's done in the past. He's proven himself over and over and over again to be faithful. And at certain points in the scriptures, they'll say, if he's already been faithful to the biggest thing, if he's already died for our sins, I mean, you can't get much more of an act of self-sacrifice than that. How much more should we trust him to be faithful in, in the rest of this? I mean, when, when I start to worry, right? When I start to wonder, you know what? This situation is just not going to work out for me. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I can see God up in heaven, right, with the Trinity there, Jesus over here, Spirit's over here, they're in a conference, okay? 
And they're going, seriously? He doesn't trust us? Like, you died. You, we died for him. And now he's worried that this little situation's life's not going to work out. How much more so if he's died for us, if we've been entered into his grace? Will he come true for us? Will, will he provide for us? Will he be faithful to us? So when we think through hope as a virtue, we, we, we think that this is going to be one of the three, again, primary character traits of a full, mature Christian person. They're always going to be expecting more and more in the future. And we would wonder maybe out loud, how it is that hope lasts? We wonder this with faith, right? Won't our faith disappear when it's sight? How will we still always have this faith? And, and we saw, well, it's a relational thing. You'll trust somebody perhaps even more when you finally meet them when you're face to face. Trust will be something that remains. You'll always trust in the triune God. Same with hope. Perhaps hope will not disappear in eternity on the new heavens and the new earth and this resurrected glorious life. Perhaps we'll still always have a future that we'll need to place in God's hand. Sometimes we think of heaven and the afterlife as this static kind of boring thing. Okay? Where either nothing happens or what's happening is not something we want to be a part of. Okay, it's like this old church service singing hymns for forever and forever and forever. Maybe I was a weird little kid, but when I was a little kid, I would sit there on my bed and I would try to play out eternity in my mind. Okay, and I say, okay, a thousand years singing songs to God. And then a thousand more years of singing songs to God. And then a thousand more years of singing songs to God. And, and really, I convinced myself as a little kid, I would rather just stop sometime. Right? Like, I'd rather either, like, a timeout or just stop. I mean, I'm happy. Let's do a couple thousand years, okay? And then let's just call it a day. Let's just say, like, this was a good run. We're okay here. We saw that the picture of, of Christian eternity from the scriptures is maybe a little more dynamic. It's a little more adventurous. It's a little more exciting. According to Revelation, we're going to reign with Christ on a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be new adventures, new tasks, new responsibilities. And there will always be, I think, this aspect of us needing to trust God for the future, and imagining and expecting and waiting for all the good things that's going to come our way in the next day, on tomorrow. And so we practice hope. We, we try to develop hope in our lives. I was reading this week from uh, Richard Foster's book, Streams of Living Water, uh, and I came across this quote on, on virtue and character transformation I wanted to share it with you. He says this, The ordinary, everyday means of character transformation often lacks the fireworks of the special infusions of overwhelming grace. He says, usually what makes a person virtuous or godly is not exciting. It's not this big explosive thing that everyone sees and is like, oh, wow, how special is that? It's the small choices, the daily choices, the choices nobody sees that often transform a character in a powerful way. He says, furthermore, it seems painfully slow though it always proceeds at a rate consistent with the nature of the virtue being sought. Another interesting thought. The deeper, more robust, more true the virtue, perhaps the harder it is to attain. Perhaps the longer it takes. For someone who's really, at their core, hopeful, perhaps they have to do a lot of the suffering and enduring and having their character produced and transformed. He quotes a guy, Francis de Sales, and he says this about him. The ordinary purification and healing, this is Francis talking, whether of the body or of the mind, takes place only little by little, by passing from one degree to another with labor and with patience. The soul that rises from sin to devotion may be compared to the dawning of the day, which at its approach does not expel the darkness instantaneously, but only does so little by little. 
And so the scriptures say, you and I should be hopeful people. We should be people characterized by hope. Always confident in the God who controls the future. And we might wonder what the vices would be then of hope. With each virtue comes vices. The exact opposite. These are character traits that will keep us locked away from where and who we want to be. These are character traits that will not allow us to march confidently toward God's future and would not allow us to, to function well there in the end anyways. Vices, maybe for, for hope. I've got three here. There were some more ahead, and, and I kind of narrowed it down to three for time's sake. Because I know when I start preaching, everyone's hoping they won't be 15 minutes long. <laughs> the first would be cynicism or pessimism, or a way of viewing the world in which everything is kind of destined to fail. There's no trust in people, there's no trust in history, there's no trust in organizations, there's no trust in God through history. You're a cynic, you're a pessimist. You almost, in a sense, have a sarcastic view of the world. I once had a professor um, talk about sarcasm. Uh, it was in a Hebrew class, and he was saying that sarcasm is perhaps the deadliest form of language human beings have ever created. Um, in that what you can do with a sarcastic word is not only tear someone down, point out a flaw or an error or something you don't like about them, but at the same time that you do that, you say it's funny to you. It's not even bad enough for you to care about he was like, it would be much less worse if you just said, I don't like this about you. What you do when you're sarcastic, you say, this is wrong about you, and it's not even worth me caring about. It's funny to me. There's a way you can view the world sarcastically, where everything's destined to fail, and it's kind of funny watching people care. And that's a vice. That's a character trait that will not last into God's future, and it will make it difficult for you to get to God's future. Cynicism, pessimism. We might say also, kind of on the opposite spectrum, blind optimism would be a vice. This is kind of the, the equal but opposite um, on the, the spectrum of kind of hope and, and virtues and vices of it. And this would be hope that has no content, that has no foundation. This would be blind hope, blind optimism. This would be what Einstein says is the definition of insanity, right? Someone who tries the same thing over and over and over again expecting the same result or a different result it's like well no the same thing's going to happen because you keep doing the same thing there are according to the scriptures certain things and certain types of people who will not have a place in god's future and it's a it's a reality that we don't like often but this is paul's point in first corinthians 6 he lists off certain types of people that you and i might know you and i might be right now you and i might used to have been and he says these type of people do not inherit god's kingdom and you can see this as a wrathful thing, as like a kicking out type of thing. Or you could see this as someone who shows up and realizes this is not for them. We wouldn't even enjoy this. I mean, if, if heaven is heaven because of who God is, if someone doesn't love God, if someone doesn't want to be close to him, perhaps heaven would be hell to them. There are certain things, certain characteristics, certain types of people, certain actions in humanity that have no place in God's future. They just don't fit they can't be sustained there. Blind optimism would be running these, living in these, experiencing these for your entire life, expecting things to one day work out for you. Sometimes I'm in the context of people, youth, who are inoculated to Jesus, are inoculated to the gospel, which means they've been vaccinated. They're worse than perhaps just pagan people because they are pagan people who think they're Christian. Which is really a dangerous thing. I mean, it's really a much more dangerous thing. But they have this, this hope. 
right? That, that everything will just work out for them. And sometimes you just want to shake them and go, well, read it, right? Not everyone and everything is going to get it worked out for. There are some things that will not happen, some people that will not be able to go into God's future. You should have this blind optimism. There's content to it, very clear content. The triune God has worked in history. And just as much as cynicism and pessimism is advice, so would be blind optimism. And then the third I might put down is, is stress or worrying. And not just maybe a little bit of stress and a little bit of worrying, which perhaps could lead to good things and lead to good decision-making and things of that nature, but overstressing and overworrying. And this is where I am guilty as charged, okay? For any given situation, if you come up to me a day or two beforehand, I can give you the list of the 15 things of the worst possible scenarios, right? That could have occurred. And it never occurred to me to just do my best and trust God. I thought, you know what will be really helpful is if I run through all the things that could go wrong all night. <laughs> That'll prepare me. Well, stressing, worrying. Again, it's a vice. There will be no need for the skill of worrying in God's future. Does that make sense? You have no need for it. It will not be used in God's future. This should not be something we're developing, we're working on, we're practicing. This should be something we're walking away from and learning more and more not to worry and not to stress and to trust God, to hope in Him. So we might wonder, though, what habits, what practices, what disciplines, what patterns would produce in us hope, would lead us to being a hopeful person? And so I'll suggest four this morning. Like last week, there's surely more. There's surely lots and lots more. And it would perhaps be a good discussion with you and your loved one, your family, your friends. I'll suggest four this morning. The first would be prayer. I think in the act of prayer, regularly praying, we develop the muscles, the moral muscles, the moral memory of hope, of trusting God, placing our confidence in Him for the future. As different things come into our life, different situations, different hardships, different struggles, different weaknesses, and we approach God and, and re-immerse ourselves in His narrative and also put it in His hands and also petition Him. I mean, you can tell a lot about what someone or who someone hopes in by how they spend their time and their energy, but what their priorities are. If I need something to happen, and I spend all of my time badgering a certain person about that to happen, right? I'm obviously putting my hope in them, that they're going to be able to fix this. And so I'm, I'm entreating them constantly. I'm constantly throwing rocks to their door. Will you do something about this? Or if, if something needs to happen, and I spend all of my time working towards it, 20 hours a day, just going at it, the, obviously, right, my, my hope for that to happen, my hope for the future is, is in myself. For the person who has a situation in their life that they're encountering, a future that they're worrying about, who takes time, legitimate, real, significant time, to go to the Father through the Son and with the Spirit. It's showing, proving, developing hope. Who is my future really in the hands of? I'll put it in the hands of, of my Lord. Now, if we can just confess, right, if, if this is a safe place to be honest, I know it's church, so not usually, okay, but I'll model this for you, right? Prayer is probably one of my weaker parts of my Christian life. In fact, I haven't really met that many people who are naturally good prayers. There are a few of them, and they're a handful, and they're rare, and we need them in the church. who are these prayer warriors. It just comes naturally for them. I don't know if it's just kind of the Western world that we're in or what it is, but I think it comes hard for some of us, for myself, in fact, I can say, unless I'm intentional about prayer, I can go two, three days and wake up and be like, wow, I have not prayed in three days. I'm a pastor. Yikes. 
Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Except for like the insignificant like you know prayer over a meal. By the way, pro tip, uh, I found this out a few years ago. The Jewish practice about praying for meals is to pray after the meal. It's because you've received the blessing, and so now you thank God for what you've just ingested. Now, if someone ever like Jesus jukes you, right? It's like you didn't pray and you start eating. That's when you're like, actually, biblically, you pray after the meal. So thank you. <laughs> you out Jesus juke the Jesus juke. Again, it's a professional tip. I will say from experience. It's harder for me to remember to pray after the meal than before the meal. So it's worth it just to front load the praying, I think, <laughs> so you don't forget um, to pray. But in my own life, the only way, and, and again, this is maybe just my weakness, the only way I've ever been able to cultivate a significant prayer life is to have scheduled, regular, appointed times to pray. And to have things written already that I'm going to pray. Again, maybe you're just better at it than I am, right? I think, though, often with these virtues, the whole point of it is these don't come easy to us. These don't come naturally to us. If I just did what came naturally to me, I would never be a praying person. I'll be 75 years old and not a good prayer. It's a paradox, as it often is with virtue. If you want to be a strong prayer, you pray. You wake up and you pray. And so literally, like, it's like calendar appointments in my iCal. Pray now, and pray now, and pray now. And I don't want to scare my more Protestant friends in our congregation, right? But I've developed, I've started praying the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. I pray other people's prayers in the morning, in the midday, and in the evening. And it leads me into my own prayers, really in a depth that I wouldn't have even gotten if I tried to do it just on my own. And that's been the only way for my life, for my experience, to, to cultivate that, that prayer life. That deep prayer life. But I do think this is a practice, this is a habit, this is a pattern. That as we do it, it transforms, it develops, it flexes our hope muscles, okay? The, the second one, so you've got prayer. And the second one, really the next three are kind of similar. The second one that we'll say is this, worship and sacraments. And what I mean by this is the regular meeting of God's people. Or what other church people might call liturgy, okay? These scheduled, appointed times where again, we come together as God's people, we sing praises to him, we read scripture together, we fellowship with each other, we take communion, we participate in the sacraments, we participate in the Eucharist. On occasion, when we have a new believer, right, we, we witness the baptism. These scheduled, appointed times where again, we come and we pay attention to God. Again, we come and we refocus ourselves around him. And here is where, really in the Protestant kind of West, we've struggled because as a reaction to the Reformation, we tried to take away power and authority and importance to the church. Okay? We thought it was a little abused. And so when we said, we're going to do things our way, and we're going to make sure everyone knows nothing really that special is happening in the church. You and I can do this on our own. We can, we can have this individual relationship with Jesus. Okay? The joke I kind of make is sometimes we see Jesus and we see the church as kind of the Facebook friends of Jesus. right? We're mutual friends. We don't really know each other and have a reason to know each other, but we all have this one guy in common. So sometimes we'll get together if we want to, if it's convenient for us, and kind of talk to him around each other. And, but what's funny about this is, and, and one of my professors points out, if you tell people there's nothing sacramental or something real happening, special happening in the church, if you tell them long enough, they'll start to believe you. <laughs> and this is kind of what we're struggling with in the church. We don't care about church anymore. No one goes to church anymore. Again, if it's not convenient, we just don't go. The older generation would lament this, right? As when we were younger, church, you went four or five times a week. It was the kind of the center of the social life. 
and now it seems at the outskirts. Now it seems like, again, a convenience if I didn't happen to have anything to do and happen to be up on Sunday morning. But there's something, and I've hit on this before, there's something about liturgy. There's something about a sacred rhythm to your life where you say, on a Sunday morning, I will be there. From hell or high water, from sleeping in or not sleeping in, from all the different plans that come in my life, I will be there. That produces in you this regular discipline habit of confession and worship and I think hope. And so you come and worship with other believers even if you don't feel good. Even if you're upset at God. Even if you're confused and having doubts. Even when the world around you is crumbling and collapsing. And again, I think what happens is your hope muscle starts to be flexed and starts to grow and starts to build through worships, worship in, in the sacraments. The third one I'll suggest is this, attention, okay? Uh, I think attention, paying attention will develop our muscles of hope. What I mean by this is paying attention to what God is doing around the world right now and to what God is doing in your friends' lives, in your family's lives, and to paying attention to what God is doing in your life. And to, to commenting on it, to calling it out, to writing it down, to discussing it with other people. I think there's something about paying attention that brings hope, that gives hope. Now, if you were just in uh, America, okay, you would not, hopefully, if you're paying attention, be too excited about the church. <coughs> if, you've, if you've been reading the, the articles or watching the news, we're on the clock until the church is no longer in America. Okay, It's just coming. I don't think, uh, I mean, maybe that's not very hopeful. I'm not sure we can reverse it. Right to the point we're in. We're 25, 50 years away from these mega churches that pepper America being museums. Uh, that we will go visit them and remember what it used to be like when everybody went to church in these mega churches on Sundays. I mean, we're really just a few years behind Europe in this regard. That's just the way, the way it's going, right? And if you were just to be kind of in our context and culture, you might bemoan the demise of the church. And might go, wow, it's not looking good for God. He really didn't have foresight on this one. The white people ain't worshiping no more. <laughs> it's, it's not good. We have the money and the resources and the nuclear weapons, and we have we're kind of the center of the power and civilization. But if you were to pay attention, here's what you'd realize. You should have lots of hope for the church. Not just theologically, because God's always going to figure a way out, right? But factually, you should have hope. Because right now, today, we're in the midst of what is perhaps the most explosive growth the church has ever seen in all of history. I mean, depending on who you read the numbers for, this is exponentially bigger than the growth of the first few centuries. We call it the New Christendom. Because it's a whole new church. The church used to be up north and in the west. Now it's down south and in the east. It's exploding faster than we can count. Literally faster than we can count. In the Asian countries, in Africa. If you were to take the average Christian alive today, it would look nothing like you and I. They would be brown or black. They'd be in a church where they see miracles happen regularly. Where they're very immersed in spiritual warfare. There's demons and there's angels involved in their daily lives. They'd be people who are persecuted, who go underground who do not work through social political structures, but work through prayer and the Spirit. They're what we would call charismatic or Pentecostal Christians. They think of the gospel in terms of Jesus defeating enemies, not just forgiving sins. And by the way, again, exploding. 
going crazy. If you, in fact, ever lived in a time where you might have hope for the church, it would be now. Again, though history has never seen something like what we're seeing now. And if you pay attention, right, you go, wow, there might be hope. Wow, we might actually be in the moment where God's exploding the church in a way it's never been before, not as we watch it wither and die. And so now, again, I mean, we're going over and saying, like, hey, could you teach us about the gospel? <laughs> what do you believe about Jesus? Because we could use some of that over here. And they're sending missionaries over here. I mean, in, in Groves, they're sending people over here to live and to disciple. Because they're like, oh, man, it's really not going well over there in the West. Let's help them out a little bit. So we pay attention, and it grows our hope. And we pay attention to our friends' lives, and our neighbors' lives, and our family members' lives. I mean, we intentionally seek out to see what God is doing, how he's moving, how he's working, and it develops hope in us, and we pay attention to how he's growing our own heart. The fourth one I'll suggest, we've got prayer, worship, sacraments, attention. The fourth one is memory. When we use our memory, when we remember, I think it develops hope in our lives. If I've ever helped anybody in my entire life, it's been through someone who is going through a time in their life where they're struggling with panic attacks, panic disorder, that kind of, kind of thing. And through the grapevine, this happens about three or four times a year, they'll hear, hey, Mike went through that, go talk to him. And we'll, over coffee or over food, sit down, and I'll simply tell them the story, what happened to me. I was going through that, and now I'm not. God saw me through. No easy answers, no, like, it's going to be better tomorrow. Just a, hey, I was there, now I'm not. Let me tell you about what happened to me. We remember, reflects our, our, our memory, and it produces hope. We remember all the times in our life that God has come through for us. And that we were worried and stressed out and pessimistic about, and he exceeded our expectations. And we remember all the times in the past in history that he's been faithful over and over and over and over again. I would say this, and if I'm, this, I think this, I just so firmly believe this, Storytelling is the most powerful tool, one of, if not the most powerful tools that Christians have to produce and sustain hope. Storytelling. The ability, the art, and the practice of telling stories. And this is what worship is supposed to be centered around, right? We come and we tell the story of God's people in Egypt and God rescuing them. And we tell the story of Jesus on the cross going into the ground and God vindicating him and, and raising him again. And we tell the story of Peter and John in prison and God releasing them. We tell the story of the church growing in Acts. And as you and I tell the stories of God in our life, we produce, again, we sustain hope, memory, stories, a very powerful weapon and hope. So often I think we get blinded by struggles or weaknesses or hardships and we lose sight. We lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of what he's done. We lose sight of what he's been in our lives. And maybe perhaps all it would take is, is to remember one good story. Or to sit down with a friend who says, hey, stop crying for a second. I want to tell you a story. This is what happened to me. And this is how I was faithful. And hope grows like a spark. It's, it's lit and it grows into a, a consuming, consuming virtue, a consuming character. So you and I, on our path, to the new heavens, the new earth. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You need to start now in the present, developing these habits, these character strengths. 
faith and hope, pessimism, worrying. These are not going to be things we need in the future. And these are not going to be things that help us get to where we need to go. But hope will and is. So we, we worship and we pray and we pay attention and we remember. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We, we thank you for the scriptures which play such an important role in our prayer and in our worship and in our attentions and in our memories. We thank you for the spirit given to us, Father, that we're not alone in this. This is, again, never our just moral effort lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's always in the context of your grace given to us, your spirit poured out into our lives. We pray, Father, that we would become hopeful people, that we would not become people who buy into the wrong story, who buy into the wrong narrative, but who exist and live and cultivate their character in your story, in your narrative. We pray that you would produce hope in us. We pray that we would be hopeful, that one day perhaps someone would see us being hopeful and would wonder how it was so easy for us. And we would think back to all the times where we prayed and worshipped and paid attention and remembered. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the spirit given to us. It's in your son's precious name that all of God's people said. Amen.